Servus and greetings from Vienna. My name is Anita Posch. Thank you for listening to Bitcoin und Co., my podcast that's introducing the philosophy, ideas and people behind Bitcoin. Thanks for tuning in again and hello to all new listeners. This episode is the first that is also released on the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, which is a fantastic opportunity to reach more people. The Bitcoin and Co. podcast is a Bitcoin-only show that's focusing on the why of Bitcoin. Why is it important for humanity? What are the implications from a privacy perspective? How are we able to grow this space together? What are the visions of the people who drive the Bitcoin space? I want to look behind all those scenes and take you with me on this journey. And sometimes my guests are rather critical about Bitcoin, which I think is a good thing. Bitcoiners tend to be full of hopium and forget to look for possible downsides. But only with critical thinking, things can be improved. Today's guest is Smuggler, a crypto anarchist I met at the Hackers Congress in Prague. We had a wide-ranging conversation about crypto anarchy, privacy, technology and democracy, and he shares some, at least in the Bitcoin space, unpopular opinions about Bitcoin. I think it's a great conversation, which is why it is longer than usual. If you're interested in crypto anarchy and its roots, I recommend to listen to episode 30 with Uri Bednar. Thank you to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network for including Bitcoin and Co. Make sure to check them out on Twitter at the LTB Network and make sure to subscribe to their feed too, where you can find other amazing Bitcoin podcasts like Let's Talk Bitcoin with Andreas Antonopoulos, Adam Levine and Stephanie Murphy, What Bitcoin Did with Peter McCormack, the Bitcoin Magazine podcast, POV Crypto, The Tatiana Show and much, much more all in one place. And as always, you can find all recommendations and links mentioned in this episode in the show notes on the episode page at bitcoinandco.com. That's bitcoinundco.com. There you can also find a books page with all reading recommendations from my guests. Before we move on to the show, a short message from my sponsors. If you want to be self-sovereign and secure your personal financial freedom with Bitcoin, you have to hold your own keys and must not use a custodial wallet. So if you think of investing in Bitcoin long term in the most easy way without using a hardware wallet, then the card wallet is for you. You will get a Bitcoin address where you can send Bitcoin to and all you have to do is store it in a safe place. That's it. The manufacturers are the Austrian State Printing House, which is also responsible for the Austrian passports, and Coinfinity, Austria's first Bitcoin broker. Order your card wallet at cardwallet.com forward slash Anita and get 20% off the price. So hello to another episode of the Bitcoin and Co. podcast. We're here on day three of the Hackers Congress in Prague and I'm sitting together with Smuggler who calls himself a crypto anarchist and we will have a chat about crypto anarchy in general and its relation to Bitcoin if there is one. Hello Smuggler and hello. thank you for your time. My pleasure. 
for a start, I always do this, introducing the guests. Please introduce yourself. I call myself Smuggler, as already said. Um, I'm a crypto anarchist, active crypto anarchist for about 25 years now. Um, have been active in the scene uh, both for um, private digital payment systems, uh, privacy enhancing technologies in general, so like uh, communication encryption, um, communication anonymization, ran several um, remailers, um, the admin of a darknet IRC service, um, am involved in a temporary autonomous zone in Berlin, and so on and so on. So there's there's a list. Mm -hmm. Don't want to bore anybody. So <laughs> a lot of uh, backtrack in that way. Yeah. So, but why are you called smuggler? Um, a few years ago, I had to change my handle because um, I made a mistake using my other handle, <laughs> and um, I chose smuggler because it has some family relations. So. <laughs> Ah, okay. So it's not a special case. I mean, there was not a special occasion or anything you did what gave you the name smuggler in that. Well, I did a lot of smuggling. In my oh, youth. okay. <laughs> in your youth. <laughs> that gets to, uh, is like a segue to uh, my next question. How did you get involved into this topic? Because I've, uh, for an introduction, I mean, I had no idea about crypto anarchy before I got into Bitcoin. And even mm -hmm. then it took me like now two years to be the first time here at this place and to get to know s something about it. And, um, yeah, where did you learn that? I mean, reading or did you know somebody? Um, it started with the Vice Youth, um, doing too many things with computers that are not, um, that legal being involved in the hacker um, community in general. Um, I think my first encounter with the cypherpunks was actually at HIP. In, uh, it was a conference. And um, from there, I became a participant in the um, cypherpunks mailing list. I read um, too much stuff there and was mostly fascinated with the technology. Um, and then over the years, I became more and more political and began to think about the, the ways in how we might have to live in a world that is infested with computers. And there's a little problem, and that is um, technology is always an amplifier of uh, will, human will. And... Um, this amplification can go often in both directions. It can be for good and can be for bad. And computers and telecommunication networks and sensors are um, very extreme amplifiers that mostly, in my opinion, have the, the ability to empower uh, rulership. It's a rule-based system. I mean, computers are basically built for um, dealing with rules and uh, dealing with data and um, combining data, etc., etc. So in, in a digital world, um, rulership is so much easier and it's so, harder, so much harder to control. And on the other hand, computers can also be part of the solution um, by using cryptography 
to uh, preserve the confidentiality and the um, privacy of communication and of business transactions and even to help us model social structures and protocols um, for people that are not physically connected. So that is how I got into the. So from your history of doing bad stuff in a way uh you i was you, never sentenced to anything okay no, no, no. <laughs> yeah but anyhow i mean from that you grew uh, actually into the opposite like uh being a um like how shall i say on the forefront of fighting for like the rights for just us like no human beings normal people who, who I, i wouldn't actually say that those are different things so what i did when i was young was curiosity in combined with not necessarily understanding the law. So it's actually worse now because what I still do <laughs> is uh, out of, of curiosity and, and interest in how to make things better. But now I understand the law. So, but that doesn't make the things that crypto anarchists do. Um, more accepted by the state. And why is it not accepted by the state? I think that the technological development of the last 30 to 40 years has caused significant changes, not just for economics and social and whatever, but also in how um, states and power um, works and how politicians deal with that. And one of the things that happened with international communication plus cryptography is that the assurance that politicians have that they're in control uh, decreased. And as a response, um, they panicked a little bit and started to um, become much more um, controlling in a way. They want to know more. They want to regulate more. It has a lot to do with other aspects of, of course, as well, like globalization and so on that all plays into that. And, um, plus there's this, this overlap between corporations that make money from, uh, data and the state. So they're not really, uh, opposing parties. They're more, uh, cooperating gang. And, um, I think that's, that's the, that triggered something like um, an, uh, a fear of being left behind and becoming irrelevant and losing control. And it's a very justified fear, I have to say. that. I mean, we kind of can see that even with all the things they're doing, they're kind of losing control in, the many, in many ways, many areas. And the the drive for more Uh, surveillance, more regulation, and so on and so on, is just a counter-reaction of them maybe sensing that their way of doing things and thinking things might have come to an end without anybody really planning for that. Just so, History sometimes happens. Mm -hmm. It seems like a spiral to me. You know, they, they started it, and now they are going further and further yes. and further. Yes. And uh, people still find ways to get out of that surveillance in a way. And um, like I understand cryptography, it's also like a defense mechanism. It's not being aggressive. Mm -hmm. It's defending yourself, is it? 
Mm. I think that cryptography has this nice property of being uh, better for honest people than for dishonest people. And it favors the the authorized person and not the unauthorized person. So what that means is uh, cryptography is in generally more friendly to um, the defender than the attacker. However, that doesn't mean that cryptography will always and only be good. It can be really bad as well. So um, just to give an example, um, if you're really paranoid, then cryptography could be used to have unforgeable passports um, and unforgeable online transactions that are recorded that have no ambiguity whatsoever. And cryptography can be used um, for building uh, an automated surveillance state quite easily. Um, however, it can also be used by people like us to try to escape that hole. Because, I mean, when we look to China, they, are, they actually have that I mean, in place yes. with their social system, with their points and yes. control yes. and incentives. And I mean, we also see here ideas of um, like um, getting more people to do positive stuff, like incentives for by cycling, for instance, yes. and getting tokens then. Yes. But uh, there is a danger that that gets into a surveillance machine. Yes, yes. Yes. So, um, what can we do about that? Because, I mean, the, most of the people simply don't care. They say, I have nothing to hide, so I give my data to Facebook. Yeah. Um, I think that while I can't really empathize with those people, um, it's understandable because most people have bigger problems in their lives than thinking about the big future. You know, um, they have a job, they have a family, they have to bring food to the table, you know, keep the roof over their heads and all that stuff. And then in the end, they're so tired that um, the best alternative to spend the rest of the day is watching TV. So that is, is the sad state of affairs. And I think one cannot really uh, accuse them of being stupid or short-sighted or whatever. You know, it's... Um, For many people, life is already too complicated. However, for those people that have free time, that can have think and that are rested enough for that, um, they don't have an excuse and they um, should really consider that the world, one of the things that always happen is that the world changes. And we have this This really bad assumption, especially in the West, it's not it's not a global phenomenon. It's a, it's a almost specifically Western phenomenon that the last two generations think that the world is only always going to be okay. Um, the Great Wars are over. We had a lot of economic growth. You know, our children were always better, and uh, democracy apparently worked. You know, so everything will be fine because it has been fine for our lifetimes it will be fine in the future and what people don't realize is that history has this this characteristic of going where we don't want it to go um things just happen um i mean nobody in 1800s predicted hitler you know um and nobody in 2000 predicted trump and when we consider the power 
of those surveillance technologies, the ability to record, the ability to um, analyze, that is only something we can tolerate if we make this really stupid assumption that the future is always going to be good and that our rulers will always be nice. And I think that latest when you look at Hong Kong, for example, you see that things can change drastically and dramatically and very quickly. And then all this data can come to haunt you. Unless you made the big decision to always be the sheep of the rulers, to give up all your say on your own future and to decide to always shut up and always go along. However, if you always shut up and always go along, then that's one of the worst ethical positions you can be in because then you become the co-conspirator of whatever evils are done. Hence, if you have a little bit of time in your life to think and look at the world, look at what's happening, um, you kind of have the obligation to to take a lot of these things seriously and maybe even do something about them. Like more on a personal level, I'm not you know, saying that you have to join some group or uh, subscribe to any specific ideology, but um, awareness and reaction is what is maybe the getting out of the jail of history card. Mm. I mean, what you see is for me very, very true because I can remember my grandfather telling me stories from the war and how they ev all the time were against the Nazis in Austria mm. and how they, how they felt like, you know, they couldn't do a thing. I mean, he, they had Jewish friends and yeah. stuff. So I can remember that and I can imagine a future like this too. I mean, just look in Austria. I mean, the right-wing FPÖ now lost vo uh, um, um, voters, but nonetheless, uh, yeah. they were in the government, yeah. you know. And then I really lose my trust too, because yeah. I'm also raised like Austria is a well state, the government is okay, yeah. blah blah. Yeah, but when these guys come, then I'm scared. Yeah, because I I'm also I'm a lesbian, you know. Yeah. I'm scared yeah. about those. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I, I know what you mean. And we have seen in Hong Kong people, uh, started to pay for their public transport tickets with cash. Exactly. To be not tracked anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. but if we don't have the possibility to use cash anymore, like paper money yeah. and coins, we're doomed. Yes. Yes. Yes, we are. Among many other, uh, reasons why we're doomed then. But yeah, exactly. And I think there's one more thing to add to that, and it's not just about the stability of government. Um, because people think that, okay, as long as the system works, we can always fix the government. You know, that's like the promise of democracy is, um, even if we have a bad government, we can like vote it out next time, you know, um, which of course comes with a problem that all the stupid people are allowed to vote as well. But, um, the, the real issue is that, the system of democracy or whatever else is not um, independent of everything else that is happening. So the effects of globalization, of technology, of ideology, etc., etc., affect um, every part of, of reality. And government is not protected from that. And the systems of our governments and states are not protected against that. Um, so one has to consider that how governments look today is 
at least in part a function of economic and social uh, and technological um, uh, changes and we have had a lot more technological changes in the last few decades and it's um, very predictable that the way we govern is going to adapt to the technology that is available and I think it's kind of short-sighted to believe that democracy as we know it in the West, you know, representative parliamentary uh, democracy is going to be the the most fitting a way of, of organizing society in our current situation of technology and globalization. I mean, when you look at the more successful states when it comes to economy and so on, um, there is a certain trend that more autocratic systems are more successful right now because of technology. China is a good example for that. And so I, I think that um, believing in the ever-stability of democracy is uh, historically blind and kind of misses the point on how politics and social systems actually work. Mm -hmm. But what would be, or what is a vision that crypto anarchists, or maybe also anarchists, I don't know the differences here exactly, mm -hmm. uh, have in mind? I mean, what, what's the way to go? What would be best for society? This is, uh, there's not a, a totally, completely easy answer to that. Um, I'll give you my answer. I'm not going to give you the answers of all the crypto anarchists because I don't speak for them um, and I'm certainly not giving you the answer of all the other anarchists because I disagree with them but um, so the, the, the first step in solving anything is to analyze the situation that's something we're, we've been doing for the last I don't know, 10 years, 20 years maybe um, there were a lot of people, people speaking up about the dangers of technology and how we organize things. 20 years ago, nobody was listening, you know. And then this dude Snowden came around and suddenly it was hip to, to talk about those things. And imagine what, um, now nobody cares again. So in a way, we're still analyzing. I think that we still haven't really grasped the, the gravity of what's going on. So that's one of the things we do. And the second th thing you do when you are faced with risk is to try to uh, minimize it, mitigate it. And that is where a lot of our activity right now is. And so um, we're building technology to not leave as many traces that could be used against us in the future. Um, building those technologies itself doesn't implement a new way on how to run things. It's just, um, in a, in a way, it's a protection mechanism to buy ourselves more time and more freedom to actually come up with alternative solutions. So we don't have, uh, so far, there is not the big concept. However, I I personally call myself a crypto anarchist and I actually have a certain vision of the future. And I do actually think that if we were to embrace the 
the parts of technology that allow us to have confidentiality, um, privacy, and um, authenticated social protocols, we could apply that to a lot of uh, parts of daily life and to a lot of parts of what we now consider domains of the state. And I think that technology allows us to um, send the state on a vacation in a, in a lot of areas. I'm not making the, the claim that it works in all areas, but in a lot of areas, I think that it would be better for the state and for us if the state wouldn't deal with them. A few examples for that are, I don't think that it should be the domain of the state to deal with private data at all. Um, I also think that it shouldn't be the domain of the state to deal with money. I also think that it shouldn't be the domain of the state to deal with identity. I think that the only place where the state is currently irreplaceable is the question of national defense and certain parts of criminal law. Apart from that, I think that the state might be an issue. And there's another area where I think that the state could be sent to vacation, but it requires some change of the people as well, and that is the the realm of social systems, like social insurance, etc. Um, while I think that we don't need the state for that, I'm, I also think that we have been trained into uh, relying on the state there, and in a way abusing the state um, to keep our own conscience clean. And so those are areas where we still have to work on. And a lot of crypto anarchists will now hate me for saying that. Um, but I think we have to take um, a measured and rational approach to fix those things that we know how to fix, discover solutions for all the things we cannot fix yet, and then make decisions. I, I'm kind of not a, a fan of let's abolish everything and then you know, fix the burning building. You know, that's not a good approach for most people. Mm -hmm. And uh, did you also mean things like basic infrastructure, like trains or streets and stuff that 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 should remain in the uh, domain of the state or not? I would actually put a lot of these things out of the domain of the state, but that doesn't mean necessarily to put them in the domain of the what we call the market today. I think there are alternative ways on, on handling a lot of these things. So um, historically, for example, a lot of roads have been um, community efforts, like local villages that would connect to each other, um, uh, trade organizations that would spun, uh, sponsor uh, roads, etc. And I, I think there's a general rule that um, should be put up front to and on top of everything. And that is um, decisions should be made where the highest effect is to be felt. So when you're building a road, the people that build the road, finance the road, and um, decide if a road should be built should be the people that are most directly affected by it. Because there's this thing that if you make decisions for projects where you don't feel the impact, your decisions are 
often not just disconnected from reality, but they also become very um, irresponsible. And I think that taking decisions to where responsibility is and, sh and effects will be felt is a good rule. And there are countries that do that a little bit. There are projects that do that a little bit. I mean, in a way, um, the Swiss system is much closer to what I think would be an interesting approach to a lot of things. Um, maybe even be a little bit more radical than the Swiss. However, no such things work from one year to the other. It takes a lot of time to switch a society to... Um, a more intelligence way of, of doing things. Plus, there's a lot of opposition um, because the general trend in a lot of Western countries is not just towards centralization, but towards supranational centralization. Um, in a way, uh, people or um, politicians orient themselves more towards politicians, not towards people. And so, while I think that we have smarter ways to go, I don't actually think that they're going to sell anytime soon. And that is actually my fear. My fear is actually that we're not going to solve those issues before um, really bad things happen. Mm -hmm. We were talking about inf basic infrastructure. The internet or TCP IP or other protocols are also actually basic infrastructure for yeah. today's life. Who do they belong to? Who controls them? Most of the internet today is has been built and is maintained by private corporations. Um, there are a few countries, of course, where the state plays a, a, a very big role. And, of course, there's state influence. You know, state decisions have influence on where fiber optic cables are laid, for example. Um, I mean, there's a, a 200 feet wide corridor in the U.S. If you would bump that, there would be no internet in the U.S. anymore because basically all the east-west cables run through this, these 200 feet. And the reason for that is state regulation. You know, it happens to be. Um, the only plot of land that goes from the east to the west that is completely controlled by the state, you know, so it makes it easier to get permission to put a cable there. Um, but in general, the internet is run and operated by um, private corporations, a lot of individuals, a lot of universities. Um, that is how the internet works. Has its upsides, has its downsides, but in general it's a pretty good model because um, the internet is not actually one network. It's a network of networks and it is to a large part built on, um, almost like a gentleman's agreement. People decide that they profit from cooperating with each other. And at least that is true for everything but the last mile. When it comes to the last mile, then the whole aspect of uh, state influence, size of cooperation, etc., become much more dominant than cooperation. Mm -hmm. You said it's a gentleman's agreement how uh, the internet works and is kept alive. Yeah. Um, have we something also in Bitcoin? No. Bitcoin is, in a way, a much easier system to run. Because as long as you have the software, you 
can connect to all the other people that run Bitcoin nodes and you become part of the thing. But the only decisions you make is um, if you want to install the Bitcoin software or not. The internet is much more complex. You know, the internet has to deal, or people on the internet have to deal with conflicts. They have to deal with resources and so on and so on. It's far more complicated, more, more decisions that have to be made. Uh, you actually have to talk to people, you know. So if you're an internet provider, you are actually going to talk to in other internet providers all the time, you know, because there's always stuff coming up that you have to coordinate. When it comes to Bitcoin, it's far simpler. You just install the software. However, simpler also means less decisions. So installing the Bitcoin software means you're going to run Bitcoin and nothing else but Bitcoin and how Bitcoin works is not your decision. You know, Bitcoin is a defined protocol. It is implemented by people, not you. And you are going to use it as it is. Um, your abilities to actually influence what is going on, how it will develop in the future, how to solve problems is um, extremely limited. It's given. I mean, you could be a developer. You could come here and talk to the others and stuff. But yeah, yeah. But, but if you compare, you know, the the number of active developers and miners compared to all the users of Bitcoin, then you have this influence asymmetry. And in Bitcoin, that is almost as big as in many states. You know, uh, yes, in a state you could you know, run up for elections, you could run for office, you know, and have influence and so on and so on. Um, yes, in Bitcoin, you could do the same thing, you know, you could become a developer, you know, learn how to program, you know, try to get um, recognition, you know, make good contribution, etc, etc. So there is, of course, um, a decision and power imbalance, which doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's just a given. You are a business owner and want to start accepting cryptocurrencies? Look no further. Salamantex gives you the all-in-one crypto payment solution. You can find all Salamantex merchants and further information about their digital payment system at www.salamantex.com slash customers. That's salamantex.com slash customers. I heard your talk yesterday, and of course, there were trials to build digital cash long mm -hmm. before Bitcoin. Yeah. And you presented something uh, I understood as an extension or an alternative or um, to Bitcoin or other uh, digital cash versions, because we also have digital money, which is mm -hmm. something else again. Mm -hmm. What is your critic about Bitcoin? Why do you want to build something else? Good question. Um, I'll make myself a lot of enemies now. <laughs> <laughs> so, first off, um, I actually like Bitcoin a lot. I kind of don't like where the the overall Bitcoin economy, ecology, and community went. But in general, when Bitcoin got out and I heard about it the first time, I thought, "Wow, you know, this is really cool." You know, now I can do certain things uh, for much less money than I would, you know, be able to do before. Um, 
However, it has gotten a little bit out of hand. So in, in a way, in, in technology, you have this, this issue that we're really, really bad in transporting knowledge from one generation to the other. And you have those, those technological trends that only exist because we have forgotten what we've done before. And this is extreme when it comes to, to computer technology. Um, a lot of things that companies get millions for development for today are things that 60-year-old system administrators do um, in half an hour, you know, because they know how things work. So this is an issue with, with technology in general. And I think that um, though Bitcoin was a very interesting um, method of solving a certain problem, it suddenly became the only method to solve that problem. And I'm not sure if it's, um, in general, the best method to do that. Um, I think, so before Bitcoin came, we didn't have a good method to do distributed uh, digital uh, payments. Bitcoin came along, it had a solution for that. I don't think the solution is the best one we can have. And I think there are better solutions. I think that what we had before Bitcoin can be developed to become something that is better than Bitcoin. Doesn't make Bitcoin uh, bad. Um, it's a it's a great innovation, but innovation is not there to be rested upon. You know, it's something to be improved upon. And in a way, we have forgotten to try to improve outside the local maximum of, of blockchains. And what I talked about yesterday, Scrit is the name for it, is um, an attempt on thinking about digital cash, actual digital cash. And I don't think that Bitcoin is actually digital cash, but never mind. But uh, about actual digital cash um, in a new way. You know, learning from the past, from before blockchain, taking a few hints from what we've learned from blockchain, and then trying to come up with a system that is different and has different properties. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a replacement for Bitcoin. I think there is one thing in Bitcoin that is completely fundamental and that will be very hard to implement fundamentally better and that is the currency function so with currency function i mean um, the creation and control of the monetary supply doing that algorithmically in a very secure way in bitcoin is very fundamental and on the other hand bitcoin sucks in a lot of other ways it's great for creating money and controlling monetary supply. It really sucks when it comes to transactions. It really comes uh, sucks when it comes to privacy. And it really sucks when it comes to uh, integrating with other systems because there's this um, trend that we have to connect everything back to the blockchain. And in my opinion, that is overloading the the properties you want to put into into one technology some technologies are better for one thing and not for the other and 
So what I think is that something like I presented yesterday, which is a distributed um, digital Chalmian cache, um, is much better for making payments. It's far faster. It's far cheaper. Um, it is provable anonymous to a very high degree. But it is not a currency. It doesn't create a currency function. It doesn't control the monetary supply, etc., etc. It would make a good addition on top of Bitcoin, for example, or other digital currencies, or even the fiat currencies. You know, it, it's kind of um, currency agnostic, but it is not a monetary policy system. It's not a currency, but it's a far faster, cheaper, and much more private way on making payments with not equal but similarly high assurance that uh, issuers cannot defraud you. Mm -hmm. So the concept of putting away central banks to issue money is something that you think is good too, because otherwise you would like say, I create now money. <laughs> um, if you asked me that five years ago, you'd you'd have uh, a resounding agreement for me. Um, I'm not so sure. So I, I think that we we want a lot of things from money, properties that money has, that might actually be incompatible. Um, central banks in bigger Western countries over the last 20, 30 years, even with financial crisis and all that stuff, have done a relatively good job on uh, stabilizing currency for trade. Um, central bank money, yes, it has this little issue called inflation, you know, but money isn't there to make savings. You know, money is primarily a tool for making payments. And when it comes to making payments, keeping um, the value of money stable enough to allow day-to-day -day payments, um, central banks have done a relatively good job of that. If I compare that to the price volatility of Bitcoin, um, even the the expectations on uh, settlement times in Bitcoin, etc., Bitcoin is far less good doing day-to-day -day payments that's not a not a critique on on bitcoin it's just uh pointing out that monetary functions and properties can be conflicting just to prevent inflation can mean that you might run into volatility or vice versa i don't know that you know i'm pretty sure that nobody really knows that and We also have those things where we say, okay, yeah, but gold, you know, gold, you know, limited supply, you know, the function of, of exploration is relatively constant, you know, um, it's easily divisible, it's the better money. But there's this issue that you actually want to have money that is created out of nothing. There is actually a point in creating that money. It's actually not that bad in some situations. You know, sometimes bigger complex uh, societies like ours or economies like ours, they're so used to, to, um, to financing debt 
that most companies wouldn't survive without the ability to get cheap short-term uh, credit. And moving that all over into a fully backed no-debt economy is not going to work. Most of the economy will completely crash the moment we actually have true interest rates. You know, nothing would exist anymore. So I understand all the theoretical um, sympathy towards algorithmic money, but I think it kind of ignores the reality in which we're living. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, Jörg Platzer said yesterday uh, he doesn't hope for a short-term change because yeah. so many companies would go bankrupt yeah. and the whole society would have yeah. huge problems. Yeah. So it might be a longer period. And even that, we don't know. Maybe it's a mixed form. Yes. It's, it's one of the reasons why I said before that the state shouldn't do money. So one of the issues with the state doing money is that innovation and adoption is going to be A, very slow, and B, extremely error-prone and or corrupt. So in, in a way, for us to find out what the right money for this time is and to actually make the transition to that kind of requires the, the state to slowly walk back and say, okay, we open this space up more and more and more and more and see what happens. Because, I mean, what, what a lot of people often ignore, especially like people like us, because we're relatively young, you know, um, we ignore that most of the capital that has those big bad effects is actually the pensions of our fathers, mothers, and so on and so on. Um, that's the, the most liquid money out there is pension funds. You know, and us overthrowing the system like in a snap second actually means that our parents are going to move in with us uh, again. <laughs> you know, so I, I think one has to to try to get a bigger picture and to have not an incremental way of change. I'm not talking about that. I'm not an incrementalist. What I am is a segmentationalist, meaning you make drastic changes in small parts of society and economy and whatever you make a complete switch there and then you see where it goes if it goes well you take the next segment and do a complete switch there if it goes well you continue incrementalism won't work because incrementalism will always introduce noise and new liabilities and everything like that but we have to change things i mean it's completely visible that we have to um, people are not able to save anymore. They rely on the state for their savings and for their old age. This is a really bad situation. So we have to change that. And it has a lot to do with how money works and how the economy works. There is no alternative to changing that. But the way and how we change that has to be smart enough that we're not killing everybody else on the way there. And do you think that Bitcoin is some kind of a store of a value for that situation? Um, no, I don't. And um, the reason for that is that Bitcoin is a social construct. And it is much more a social construct than uh, even gold, as money is. Because 
the properties of Bitcoin themselves are completely and only the result of human decision. Bitcoin is an algorithm. And it was created by humans, it can be changed by humans. And of course, the the number of humans that have to agree to that is not small, but it's actually not big either. And there is no prediction on what humans do in the future. We don't know how things will work in 20 years, if there will be any Bitcoin in 20 years. We don't know. Which means that Bitcoin is more or less reduced to the whims of the market in a very unpredictable way. There's much more future expectation that drives the stability of Bitcoin than actual fundamentals. Which means that the introduction, for example, of a new technology that is better in some form than Bitcoin can lead to Bitcoin um, slowly and then faster and faster and faster and faster lose its value. Um, it can also, um, Bitcoin can also fail prey to more regulation. We're seeing that already, you know? And while it's not the Bitcoin protocol itself that is regulated, the Bitcoin economy and the regulation of the Bitcoin economy can have um, dramatic effects on how useful Bitcoin is without anything changing about the code. You know, your ability to use an exchanger, um, the kind of reporting that goes in there, um, where taxation happens, when taxation happens, are huge um, factors in what Bitcoin actually can be without any of us actually having influence by changing the code. So there there are those um, those huge insecurities there that are completely disjunct from physical properties or even theoretical properties. They're not they're Bitcoin and the whole Bitcoin economy is completely changeable. And that makes it mostly a speculative um tool. It's, does it store value? Yes, it does. How long does it store value? That's a big question. I wouldn't put my my money into Bitcoin now and not touch it for 20 years and then go into retirement. On the other hand, you cannot do that with anything else either, you know? So what you what you really have to do, no matter what you're doing, is the whole thing of number one, diversify. Number two, stay on top of things. You have to deal with your money. You know, the times of putting money on your bank account, you know, and being sure that it still buys anything 20 years down the road, those times are long over, you know. Um, today, if you even want to keep the purchasing power of your money, you have to be active, you know, and you have to also understand again that money is not for saving. Money is for payment. If you want to save, you want actual capital. And with actual capital, we're not talking about um, numbers. What we're talking about is stuff like um, shares in productive companies or um, houses or another thing that I'm a big fan of, invest some money into yourself, you know, health, education, stuff like that, you know, good relationships, you know, um, spend money on becoming better, more healthy, 
uh, smarter, be better in the job market, live longer, be productive longer. I mean, in a way, the whole concept of retirement might be on the way out. You know, um, it's a relatively new invention. You know, it's not even 300 years old, you know, and it was invented mostly to allow the state to have more control. That's a big part of uh, why this concept of retirement came into, into play. Um, and now with technology changing and maybe even our, our, um, political systems changing it might be that retirement is on the way out that retirement is not anything for those people that are now 30 years old so it might be really important to understand that while our parents could have an education and then just hold a job and then go to into retirement this easy life might not be there for us anymore our life might be what has been before which is consistently and constantly improve yourself improve your skills, change your jobs if you have to, um, build family, build relationships, have a house to live in, you know, or a van at least, you know, <laughs> yeah. or a container in my case. So um, those are things that might be much more important for your future than the money in your bank account. You just said you live in a container. No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I understood. Well, um, sometimes I do. <laughs> so, um, I, I actually have, uh, a, a, a flat as well. Yeah. But, um, I'm involved in a, in a project mm -hmm. that, uh, is, uh, concerning containers that are built out for living, uh, to create an autonomous space. And from time to time, I happen to sleep there. Mm -hmm. But there are people, I think also in Berlin, who have like, uh, trailers. Yeah. And live only there and yes. move from space yes. to space. Yes. And then they are get thrown out because, yes. you know, the money, yeah. money people come and want to build something. Exactly. Gentrification. Well, this is about yeah. to happen to us as well. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one question. I mean, yesterday when you were talk talking or when I saw your YouTube talk, you were wearing a mask. Yes. So, but then you on your slides, there was a name. Yes. Your real name or not? No. Not my real so, name. Okay. I have layers of names. Layers of names. Yes. Isn't that very complicated? I mean, so does only like uh, the state or your health insurance know your name? Uh, my mother does too. <laughs> um, and, and your my partner girlfriend. Makes, yeah. <laughs> so, um, it is. Um, I don't. I don't consider it complicated. So um, I have the same name within a certain. Um, community environment, etc. I don't change my names like I change my underwear, you know? Um, so there is a certain consistency of identity within a certain context. And in another context, I might have a different name and in still another context, I might have a different name. Um, I do it mostly for privacy protection. Plus, after doing that for long enough, it kind of becomes a lifestyle and natural second thing i have issues sometimes to remember my legal name now for me the complicated thing is i mean i got to know a guy he also wears a mask um but the first time we met he didn't wear it and here he's wearing it again and and he was like hello and i was huh <laughs> you know and then he said yeah i was the guy yeah okay yeah um yeah. but but um I also, when I read about uh, crypto anarchy in a, a way to try to find out what it is, um, that wearing these masks um, 
helps you to find yourself in a way because you don't mm -hmm. have to play the game of uh, mm -hmm. how do I look and yes. who I am. Yeah. Well, in, that is what privacy in general does. So if you um, experience privacy, you will uh, discover that you can experiment with yourself and that you can um, express things that in other situations without privacy, you're so much more afraid to express. And this is not necessarily a conscious thing. You know, it's not, not about us being not private, going through the world and all the time thinking, oh, we cannot express ourselves. It's a very subconscious thing. And it's built into humanity. You know, it's uh, kind of is necessary for us to work, you know, but privacy is as necessary. We have to actually uh, experiment, um, self-express, maybe even come into new kinds of conflicts um, for us to develop. Um, a lot of our um, social programming is really good for static situations. But specifically in, in this time, but also during phases of every human life, you're not static. You develop quickly. And being unhindered in that, yes, you should be moderated in that, but you shouldn't be hindered in that. And if you're hindered in that, you actually don't become the best you could be. But you become the best that your peers allow you to be. And that is not a very good thing, especially if you're living in a society that doesn't actually have the trust that people could be better. And I think we're living in such a society right now. You know, we make a lot of judgments a lot of, about a lot of meaningless shit and put people into little mental cages. And often we do that because we're afraid or because we think that the different person wants to change our life or whatever. But a lot of that is just projections. And I think that the privacy is a good enabler for self-discovery, but also for social development of groups. So, for example, I've been long been a part of anonymous communities on the internet. Darknet to be exact, you know, you're going the full way, not the halfway. And, um, what happens there is all of the people there have fake names, handles. They're relatively consistent. So there, there is a certain, um, identity that is built up. You know, you see the same name, you kind of guess it's the same person, but there's no connection to their physical body. There's no, um, no long-term reputational effect on their legal identity. And in those communities, things get thought. So, for example, I'm utterly convinced that where Bitcoin came from was one of those communities. And a lot of other things came from communities like that. Ideas come from communities like that. If you go back into history... Um, the early royal society, the invisible college, uh, the, the uh, Republic of Letters, etc. Those were pseudonymous societies and that allowed them to question absolutism, that allowed them to go a little bit too far with science, you know, and stuff like that. And in a way, um, pseudonymity and specifically anonymity 
are enablers of thinking radical new things and thinking them quickly and thinking them honestly. And the same way, it's a way, it's a method to become more honest with yourself and with others. There's, I think it was Voltaire who said that, um, if you give a man a mask, he will start telling the truth. And if you take it away, he'll lie. And I think there's truth to that. When we're always out there with our face, judgment is more about our person and not about our thoughts. And when we put on the mask, our thoughts become important, not our person. Truth becomes more, more important. And that is why it's really important to do that from time to time, at least. Mm. But on the other hand, I mean, the negative aspect is that some people dare to say things that they would not dare to say if they would show, would be in person. I actually think that's a positive thing. Because, um, those people saying those evil things are still evil people, you know, and you don't recognize them when they're not wearing a mask. So you're running around and there are a lot of enemies sitting around quietly, just waiting for stabbing you in the back, you know, give them a mask and you find out who they really are and you can, you know, engage. <laughs> <laughs> That's also true. Yeah. Um, so you just mentioned uh, the dark web or the dark net. Yeah. What's the difference and, and where, where is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, my, my definition is really clear. So the dark net or dark nets are networks that on the internet, overlay networks, that express two things. Number one, you cannot go in there with standard software. And number two, they're anonymous. Much more anonymous than the internet itself is. And they're anonymous for both sides. So they're anonymous for operators of websites and services and for the users of those services. So that's the dark nets. And there are several of them. The dark web, for me, is um, website host, websites hosted and reachable through the dark net. That's where I make the distinction. Um, yeah, that's it. And what do people do there? I mean, <laughs> I only know, I only know and use sometimes Tor, yeah. you know, for transacting yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. But, but that's it. Well, that, so you're a darknet user. <laughs> well, depending on if you go to hidden services or not. So, um, what do people do on the darknet? There is no good answer to that because there's no good answer to what do people do on the internet? Because in many ways, The darknet is a very small, little internet, you know, when it comes to the, size, uh, the, the amount of services offered, etc. But it's also um, a very little regulated part of the internet. It's not completely unregulated, you know. It's not like it is an actually unlimited free space where you can do whatever you want without any consequences. That's not. There are a lot of consequences if you're doing it wrong. Um, But there are less consequences than on the normal clear internet. And one of those consequences is, uh, one of the features is because you're more private, people experiment more on the darknets. So you have, for example, forums, social networks that, uh, where people talk about things 
they wouldn't talk about on Facebook or Twitter. Um, you have organizations operating on the darknet that support, for example, dissidents in authoritarian states. Uh, or you have people that help journalists, or you have darknet markets where you have free commerce without taxes and regulation on the chemicals that you put into your body. Um, or you have uh, people that are into depiction of sexual acts that are not widely, and luckily not widely available on the internet, and, and so on and so on and so on. So, the, in a way, the darknet is a reflection of all the things we want to do and sometimes don't do. Yeah. And as far as I see it, sometimes developments from there, like technical developments, when we look at pornography in the 80s or 90s or whenever back yep. then, uh, they were like technical the basis for video on demand or yep. something like that now. What would be things that you think will come into mainstream in like five to ten years, which are now only in the dark web or the dark net? If I knew that, <laughs> I'll yeah. be rich in ten years. <laughs> but, uh, cryptocurrencies are used there, I guess. Yes, so, among other things, yes. Yes. I mean... um I, I don't really. I really don't know. Um, I have hopes, but I don't have a good argument for any of those hopes. Um, I think that there might be something like a change of communication culture that is possibly developing on the darknet and that might go into mainstream. I think a lot of people are discovering that how we do. Uh, internet communication today, like Facebook and Twitter and all these things, is not the most healthy way of doing things. And we might have to experiment with alternative methods of having communities. And I think there's a lot of experimentation when it comes to that on other parts of the internet and the darknet. Um, if that will really happen, I don't know, but I kind of hope that. Um, I hope that specifically for the problem of um, you want to have anonymity in our social media communication. On the other hand, we don't want um, social media to become too toxic. And finding technical and social ways to balance that out is something that, if it develops, it will develop on the darknet. Um, because only there you have an environment that really requires the balancing of anonymity and civility. Um, because in on the clear net, you always, everybody is going to say, oh, let the state solve that, you know? Um, so there won't be a good solution. On the dark net, there's no state to help you. So you have to come up with a solution. And that is actually one of my biggest hopes is that People on the darknet, not the darknet itself, but people on the darknet will experiment with ways and how we can have more privacy in general, everywhere, um, while still be able to have society. Mm. Thanks for that. Do you have any recommendations for the general internet user as of today? 
to be more private or to be not mass surveillance? Um, yeah, several. There's um, a big link between um, computer security and privacy. Um, you are doomed when it comes to privacy if your computer is not secure, at least not a little bit. So um, suggestion number one is um, keep your computer updated and install as little uh, software as possible. They're those software holders, you know, they, they see it's free software somewhere and they download it, install it and forget it. Um, what a lot of that software does is um, it monetizes your data and you don't want that. So um, only install the software that you need. Uh, uninstall the software that you don't need. Um, the next thing is you have to be careful on how you use the internet. So um, a lot of people think that when a website asks them for their name, that they should give their real name, the true name. No, you don't have to in most cases. Uh, if it's your bank, yes, you know. But if it's a random web block, you know, or a social media site or whatever, um, be creative, you know, generate a new name, you know, put that in. Same thing with your email addresses. Don't use your same email address everywhere. Actually, your your main email address should be very sparsely used. You use it only for maybe the government, maybe for your bank. That's kind of it. For everything else, generate new email addresses. There are services out there that allow you to have hundreds of email addresses for one account. Would you use then something like Tutanota or ProtonMail, or is that then? Yes, that, that's better than using Hotmail. Yeah, sure. You know, so, or yeah. Google Mail. Yeah. You know, um, I would actually that kind of touches on the on the next point. And there's a be aware of free services. There is no such thing as a free lunch as we say, um, you're always paying somehow, or somebody is paying somehow. Um, it is a good rule of thumb that if you want to have value, you pay for it. You know, and it's just a fair thing. So, don't go to a free email provider. You know, go to an email provider that has a good mission statement that um, kind of puts your privacy and you as a customer first. You know, it's great if you were the customer and not, you know, part of the product generation. So, um, yes, use paid Proton Mail, paid Tutanota, something like that. You know, it's not that much money. You know, you're not going to get broke. I think it's 12 euro a year. Yeah, I mean, please, you know, most people pay more for coffee on a single day. So, um, pay for it, you know. Um, Free products are going to cost you in the long run. Paid products might be the cheapest option you have. So, um, yes, get a, get an independent mail provider. Don't take the mail from your internet service provider. You know, really bad. It's a lock-in strategy. You'll be doomed forever. You know, select a good email provider. Stick with it. So, um, then there's all the stuff um, about configuring your browser. Clean your history, clean your cache, and so on and so on. Plus, there are a number of really good uh, plugins that help you with that. One of the things you should always do today is ad blockers. Um, ads and how they're uh, technically served to you is one of the biggest ways of tracking people. 
Um, using the internet without an ad blocker today is um, bordering on criminal liability, at least negligence. Um, so ad blockers are a really good uh, thing to do. And you should think about using um, anonymization technology. Tor and similar is a little bit slow, in my opinion. And it might not be your best option because of certain security characteristics of Tor being not exactly what most people want. Um, there are some really good internet, um, uh, VPN providers on this planet. You have to be a little bit careful when selecting them. Uh, there are a few rules you should follow when selecting them. Um, one of the rules is when you look at the price, does it make sense? If somebody is going to sell you a privacy service for $2 a month, I wouldn't expect too much privacy. Um, if somebody is claiming that he'll protect you against the NSA, you can be pretty sure that it's either bad marketing or an idiot running the system. Um, if it's a single hop, single operator system, you're not gaining much because you're just shifting the trust from your internet service provider to some offshore VPN provider. It's usually not a good deal. Uh, you want to have a multi-jurisdictional, multi-organizational, um, multi-hop VPN to gain any privacy at all. May I say something? Uh, I, I, I've just chosen NordVPN for me. So, and then I realized... My condolences. Okay, yeah, exactly. Because when I'm in the in a hotel and use the Wi-Fi and want to use the VPN, I'm blocked and yes. I can never use the Wi-Fi again. Yes. Or or my even my own hosting web hosting provider doesn't let me on the website yeah. through this NordVPN yeah. stuff. Yeah. So I mean that that that's, that's not necessarily the fault of the VPN provider. It's the fault of how we decided to battle abuse on the internet. Um the growing trend on the internet right now to fight spam and abuse is something called IP intelligence. So basically, there are uh, companies that um, have databases of IP addresses and they annotate those IP addresses with information. And this information can be uh, the location, the user, uh, the provider, and so on and so on. And for example, it can be something like how anonymous is the user? And um, websites then uh, subscribe to those databases. And when you try to reach the website, the website looks it up, uh, the, your IP address looks it up in the database, and if it says anonymous there, they block you. And that is how a lot of companies think that you get security on the internet. Um, it's completely stupid, but it was the current trend. So do you maybe have any list of recommendations? I mean, because it's, you know, when you, you start looking for that stuff, you're overwhelmed <coughs> because you also yeah. don't know the criteria for yes. which um, one to choose. VPN provider, and I don't want to turn this into marketing. <laughs> but, um, so I work for CryptoAP.com. It's the company I work for, and I'm, I work for them because I like their product, and I did a lot of the development for their product and know what it does. However, you shouldn't get crypto hippie just because they said so. You shouldn't get anything just because anybody said so. If you're if you want to rely on a technology, you should 
use common sense, a little bit of thinking, and then decide on the product. Yes, please look at select.cryptohiffy.com <laughs> and then compare it. Mm -hmm. You know, see what what features we have. See if you trust us. And do that with any other VPN provider as well. And then make your selection. Um, I'm not going to recommend anything because a recommendation is just a shortcut for not having to learn a crucial skill. And there are some crucial skills you have to have in the digital age. And um, with smartphones, what would be your basic uh, ideas there? What should we do or not? Ideally, we don't have smartphones. <laughs> Practically, we have. Um, I have a very unpopular thing that I do, and that is for my secure needs. I actually don't have a smartphone. I have an iPod Touch. It's an Apple product. Um, it basically works like a smartphone, like an iPhone, except that it doesn't have um, a basement processor to reach the cell phone network, but it, it's a mobile computing device. It's relatively cheap. You can replace it every year. Um, and it, if you know how, you can secure it relatively well. Um, in general, I kind of like Apple when it comes to their mobile computing devices because of the lower fragmentation of the uh, ecosystem. They're much better in pushing updates. If you're going to the Android world, you only have two choices, really, and that is Samsung and Google. However, um, getting them, getting the base tracking out of stock Android is not trivial. Um, in, so it is actually a good choice to, to get a, a modern Google phone from Google because you will have updates quickly and updates are really important for your privacy and your security. Um, Getting a cheap, no-name Android phone is usually a really bad idea. So go for, go to the source, you know, go iOS directly or go Google directly. Um, and then work a lot to get it a little bit more private. And a big part of getting it private is there's no reason to uh, register your Apple ID or your Google account with your real name and real e email address. Uh, just don't do it. Um, if you have Android, don't pay for your apps with your credit card, but get prepaid cards for buying apps. Um, use as little, as, as few apps as possible. Don't install apps that you don't really, really need, you know? And if you don't need an app anymore, delete it. You know, uh, encrypt the phone. All modern phones al allow that today. Encrypt it. Um, don't use Face ID. Um, be very when it comes to fingerprints. Um, they're very convenient. I use that myself a lot, but I'm always feeling bad about that. Don't have any any secret on your phone. You know, nothing on your phone is secret. And switch off your phone a lot. You know. Most of us shouldn't be reachable all the time. You know, it's not healthy. Um, switch off your phone. And keep in mind that when your phone is on, no matter where you are and what phone it is, it is trackable and it is tracked. So switch it off. 
you know um and maybe in a few years we learn how to live without those fuckers yeah but sometimes you need a cell phone number for a text coming in to confirm something what do yes. you do then then you switch on your phone okay you you have you use it because i understood yeah. you you don't use cell phones well i, I sadly i do okay sadly yeah. i so do and i wish i would mm -hmm. yeah understand yeah. so thanks that was a huge and a great conversation thank you very much you're welcome um last point uh, last thing do you want to tell us where people can find you and your work and maybe more readings about crypto and anarchy and stuff mm -hmm. so for uh crypto anarchy in general uh anarplex.net um it's a project i'm involved in it's also an irc community connected to that uh, sometimes you will find people that actually want to talk to you and will be able to to answer questions and point you in some direction there's a lot of reading material on the on the website that is for free um my personal website is opaque.link um most of my writings and most of my projects end up on that website sooner or later Okay, great. I will put that in the show notes. And thank you very much and have a good day. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Bye. If you like my show, please subscribe to it in your podcast player and share the episode on social media. You can find all links that were mentioned in the show notes on the website or in your podcast player. If you are in the mood for a donation, feel free to tip me at tippinme at Anita Posh. You can contact me also on Twitter, LinkedIn or YouTube. Goodbye from Vienna of Wiederhören. Music, start with yes, delicate beats. Idea, content and production, yours truly, Anita Posch. <laughs>